Hi, I'm Doc, and I'm uh, recovering from alcohol and, and drugs. I think I was born fitful, upset, anxious, tense, probably really angry. My earliest emotional memories uh, were of not fitting in, not belonging, wanting to be just left the fuck alone and being the odd one out. I come from a large immigrant Russian Jewish extended family. They were not particularly religious, but they were culturally traditional, celebrating major Jewish holidays and festivals, gathering together, eating huge elaborate meals and drinking. The men on my dad's side of the family were copious drinkers. Uh, only, only one favorite uncle was an alcoholic. He died at age 41 of liver failure. My grandfather was the undisputed drinking champion of the clan, living to be about 100 years old and never exhibiting any negative health, social, legal, financial, emotional consequences as a result of his alcohol consumption. He was um, an incredibly important man to me and a, and a strong, strong role model. Being the firstborn male grandchild um, conferred a rather old country and backward privileged relationship for me with my grandfather. It earned me a seat next to him at family gatherings. When I was about five years old, I sat at his side at a large family Passover or Seder table. At this meal, it's customary to consume four glasses of wine during the three to four hour ritual feast. Uh, my family typically had whiskey or vodka prior to dinner. The wine on the Passover table was a kosher wine, either Manischewitz or Mogan David. These were sickeningly sweet, thick, syrupy, horrid drinks, Concord grape wine. Ugh. As I mentioned, I was five years old and seated next to my favorite relative. He amazed me and I was absolutely in awe of him for the remainder of his life. He poured me a full glass of the sweet syrupy stuff. Now, no adult, including my parents, said anything about this action. And I don't know if they just didn't notice or they didn't want to challenge the family ruling authority. I suspect that most of my family didn't consider this wine to be any more potent than Coca-Cola or soda pop. I vividly remember taking a drink and feeling immediately swept away by a most magical sensation. I experienced an exquisite warm burning inside my mouth, all the way down my throat to my stomach. I simply lit up. I soon polished off the potion and felt a marvelous sensation of being liberated, free, and man, I was fully alive. I felt like I became a different person and I loved it. I, am, I met and I embraced the dragon and he was mine. I recall running around the table, feeling like a bird flying past my parents, my uncles, my aunts, and my cousins. They were laughing at me as I flew by, except an old grand aunt abruptly interrupted my maiden voyage. She was upset and she was angry and she shouted in Yiddish, Eres shaker, eres shaker. He's drunk, he's drunk. Well, she was my first experience of a buzzkill. I had no idea what the implications were, but I knew she was upset with me and she didn't appreciate my liberation or my newly discovered ability to fly. 
I recall being angry at her, really angry, and I avoided her as much as possible for the remainder of her, remainder of her life. I don't know if I blacked out or passed out, but the next thing I remember was waking up in my own bed the next morning, and I was full of these wonderful memories of a potion that completely changed how I felt inside. I was an anxious kid, hyperactive, fearful, tense, and really angry. Going to new places, meeting new people were nightmares for me. I got into a fight the first day of kindergarten. My mother was called to school, had to take me home, and this became a pattern. I absolutely knew I was an outsider and I didn't fit in well with other people. I just felt out of place in most places at most times. My parents would visit both sets of my grandparents each weekend. Typically there was a noon meal at one house and then we'd move over to the other side of the family for an evening meal. And at these occasions, guess what? There was always, always alcohol. At seven or eight years of age at our family gatherings, I would hit up some of the adults and some older cousins for a sip of their beverages, bourbon and ginger ale, vodka and tonic, seven and seven, and most would oblige me a small taste. And I took only a small sip from four or five different adults, but it did produce a lovely internal effect and I felt fine. Numerous times I was admonished, too much, and I was refused sips. So I quickly learned my go-to people. And the effect of these multiple sips were not at all as dramatic as my first venture into the far reaches of the galaxy just a few years earlier. But these experiences with alcohol did make me feel less anxious and they made life not only tolerable for a few hours, but I felt really good and that I just might belong. I learned that if I helped with clearing glasses during drinks before dinner, I could collect the remnants of what was in the bottom of each glass, and I'd down it. This way I didn't have to ask for as many sips and I could get brownie points for assisting with cleanup. This also worked pretty great after the dinner and cleaning wine glasses. Just pour the extra wine into another glass and down it. I was caught by older cousins several times, but never really ratted out. And I just learned to perfect my sneak drinking. When I hit double digits, I graduated to an apprentice, apprentice bar stand, bartender. I would help out the <clears throat> several older first generation adults. And in this role, I was able to cop a decent buzz on a fairly regular basis. And I got to really loving these extended family gatherings. I felt fine. And occasionally I felt like I was unable to wait for weekend gatherings to get the relief that alcohol provided. I absolutely hated the constant and pervasive feeling of anxiety, worry, tension, being an outsider, not belonging at home, not belonging at school, not belonging on the block. I was constantly primed for fight or flight. I began to take, or more accurately, steal whiskey from my parents' bar, and I'd mix it with soda, Coke, or 7-Up. 
At 11 years old, I had my first incident of drunk driving. I was buzzed and riding my bike. Actually, I was flying my bike. I was cruising down a boulevard in the San Fernando Valley in Southern California. And I banked a gentle, easy lift at the corner drugstore on Woodman Avenue. I soared along the sidewalk. And I got to an alleyway and I ran smack into the side of a truck that was exiting the alley. I was uh, knocked off my bike, which buckled under me. And the driver jumped out, asked me if I was hurt, and then ran into the drugstore to get help. A bunch of people came running out, including the pharmacist who I knew, and they kept ask, asking me, are you hurt? Are you hurt? And I wasn't. I just wanted to get away from it, but my bike was damaged. And an ambulance showed up and then took me to a hospital. A nurse checked me out. And much later, after seemingly waiting an eternity, a doctor came in with my mother in tow. And I thought, oh, man, I'm busted. My secret is discovered and I'm a dead man. I would be hung, drawn and quartered, wait for my father to come home. I will be tortured. But no, nope. the nurse, nor the doctor, nor my mother said a word. I suppose drawing a blood alcohol level on a kid was not common pediatric protocol back then. And I escaped with the exception of a broken bike, which was back at the drugstore. I sort of learned a valuable lesson. Don't drink and drive, unless you have to. And I mostly held to the no drinking and driving policy. In retrospect, I'm so fortunate that I never hurt or injured anyone when I was drunk. This was not the case when I was without alcohol on board. I was an incredibly strong kid for my age. I could fight and I could hurt people who tried to hurt me. And I got really good at fighting. My grandfather, my uncle and my dad owned and operated retail family furniture businesses from the 1930s through the mid sixties. Wholesale men would, would come in you know, to sell their goods to, to my family. And uh, they'd come into the store at Christmas time and at other times of the year with bottles and cases of wine and whiskeys. They were liberally given to my dad as appreciation for business. And my dad would typically take the lot home and store them in our garage, dipping into the stash to bring it to these family gatherings or for my parents' own use. I don't think my dad ever kept count or monitored the stockpile. I had what seemed to be an absolutely unlimited amount of alcohol. I began to use it more frequently and eventually became a daily drinker during high school. Prior to attending high school in the late 1950s, I discovered another dragon, prescription drugs. I don't recall why or what may have been wrong with me or <laughs> what was wrong with my mother, but she gave me a cap full of liquid phenobarbital. Why the hell she had phenobarb, I have no idea. She certainly did not have a seizure disorder, but she had the medicine and it too, like alcohol, quickly and physically changed how I felt. I felt fine. And my mom had a drawer of uh, 
incredible amounts of painkillers. A medicine chest stocked full, a lot of painkillers, particularly opiates. And I frequently use these with and without permission to treat severe migraine headaches, which started as a young kid, still have them today. Although I don't treat them the same. Codeine with a migraine could push the pain to the sideline or kick it up into the bleacher seats. Codeine without a migraine, oh my goodness, that felt to me like a grand slam. John Prine, the singer-songwriter, wrote a song uh, involving having an illegal smile. Well, I love that song, and I wore an illegal smile way before John penned the lyrics. That was the major smile of my life, an illegal smile. The discovery that pain medicines relieved or abated my anxiety made me feel a whole lot less like an outsider. And it was truly amazing to me. I discovered the magic of chemistry and synergy as a young teenager, where a little bit of one compound mixed with a little bit of another substance could produce a bigger bang for the buck than any single unit by itself. Damn. I thought I was a genius. Made perfect sense to me. I wouldn't have to steal as much from my mother or raid other kids' parents' medicine cabinets. I could mix and match a little bit here, a little bit there, and I could hold my demons in place. I felt so cool. I felt so smart. Clearly, way too smarty pants for my own good. In spite of what was to become a dual addiction, I did really well academically. I was a straight A student from the sixth grade through high school. I entered college and did pretty well academically and managed to balance my using and drinking without too many consequences. I was a hyperactive kid, as I mentioned. And I also had difficulties regulating my attention. Surprisingly and slightly atypical, alcohol and drugs helped me concentrate which was an amusingly paradoxical effect. If I could just titrate the amount that I used, too little, and I didn't feel it. Too much, and I went to sleep. I was a quiet drunk. I drank and used mostly while I was alone. I felt like Ferdinand the Bull. I just wanted to be alone to sit and smell the flowers. When I was straight, I was anxious, agitated, tense, on guard, frequently angry, and I could slip out of control. In 1960, because of increased business opportunities, my parents moved from the San Fernando Valley in Southern California to Orange County, California. The OC, as it was never, ever, ever known then, was a vast expanse of orange groves, open land, riverbeds, small quaint towns where life was pretty darn easy. As long as you were white and you were Christian. This move was a huge cultural change for me and my family. I never experienced racism or anti-Semitism prior to living in Orange County. It was truly a horrible, horrible experience. I got bullied and beaten by older kids at school and in neighborhoods. I got called vile names by teachers and by some adults out of school. 
One night, my family and I woke to a cross burning on our front lawn. My first reaction to verbal abuse, bullying, or a shoulder push was to fight. I was bounced out of school numerous times for fighting. I fought both in and out of school. I severely injured several other kids and hospitalized one adult. Rationally, I knew that if I continued fighting, the consequences would become much more extreme, way more extreme than being suspended from school. I reasoned that my life would become seriously more negative and unbearable. Controlling my temper, if provoked, was near impossible. Jail was inevitable if I stayed on this path. I had a really short fuse and alcohol and drugs would give me a much longer fuse and save me a good deal of pain. I knew I'd kill somebody or get killed if I let my temper run wild. Drugs and alcohol made sense. It was medicine and it was my medicine. Drawing on a line from Tom Waits, I was half drunk most of the time and all drunk the rest. I absolutely aspired to half drunk. I lived that way for the next 10 years. Half drunk, I was quiet inside and I felt less alone with or without people around me. I didn't cause too much grief to anybody. My temper rarely flew out of control. I found my sweet spot most of the time. Half drunk was where I wanted to be. That's where I felt most comfortable. In 1971, I went to Micronesia to complete a summer internship. At that time, Micronesia was a trust territory of the United States. One sterling advantage of being a trust territory was that there was no tax on alcohol or liquor. I could purchase a quart of the right Reverend Johnny Walker Black or Mr. Daniels for little more than three bucks a bottle, three bucks a quart. For less than $10 a week, all was right in my world. I was fine. I recall actually being proud of myself. I was learning to drink like my grandfather. Except I got up one morning and I went into the bathroom and I looked down and I observed that my urine looked like coffee or Coca-Cola. I looked in the mirror and I saw the whites of my eyes were yellow. I knew what was wrong. I watched my uncle die from this liver disease just two years previous. To confirm my suspicions, I went to go see the public health nurse who had been a member of the group I was drinking with the previous night. I followed her into the clinic lab where on a bench with some scant medical supplies, was a torn down outboard motor, spark plugs, few dirty, greasy rags. She reached up over the bench and uh, came down with an empty Skippy peanut butter jar. She handed me the jar and she said, pee in this. I turned my back to her, did as instructed, put the lid back on the jar and put it on the bench. She picked it up, made certain the lid was secure, and shook the dark contents vigorously. Then she held it up to the light streaming into the lab window 
and then confidently instructed, you see the green bubbles on top? That's bile. You have hepatitis. And she added what I already knew. You shouldn't drink. And if you do, you'll get worse and you may die. Well, shit, that was pretty straightforward. I couldn't drink. I saw my uncle die a horrible, agonizing, miserable death. And I was frightened. I was really terrified out of my cookie. I'd seen a fair amount of deaths up close and personal to that age. And some deaths were really peaceful. Uh, some almost beautiful. And some were really ugly. Really, truly ugly. Death from liver failure was really ugly. I couldn't drink if I wanted to live, and I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. The fact that I was so sick with hepatitis, the high raging fevers, the delirium, drenching sweats, complete anorexia, total exhaustion from the slightest physical exertion, I was really sick. I was yellow. I was so sick that I had no cognitive understanding that I was also detoxing from alcohol. I was experiencing a whole lot of rock and roll without the benefit of any music. Weeks later in the fall, I returned to UCLA and I saw real doctors who confirmed the diagnosis, hepatitis A, and they stressed no alcohol. Well, no alcohol. I was 100% compliant, absolutely no alcohol. However, no one said anything about using drugs, especially drugs that were not thought to be liver toxic. Well, my drug use rose higher and higher. No alcohol, just drugs. Yep, yep, I got this one. After a year or so, my liver function test dropped to within normal limits. And when I received the good news, I did ask the internist if I could have a drink every now and then. And he quite casually said, sure, every now and then. Uh, and of course, just don't overdo it. Cool. No problem. I got this one. Well, the formula or algorithm every now and then worked for two or three weeks. And now and then devolved into only now. And I was back to daily use. but three things changed. First, my half drunk most of the time decreased. Second, my half drunk all the time increased. Third, my cognitive clarity, ability to focus, study, perform research tasks, lecture, teach, all destabilized and deteriorated. Social structures and supports absolutely caved in. The synergy was not working out all that well. Life wasn't working out. I was emotionally miserable. And in a moment of clarity, after I tied off and spanked my arm, I knew in my core, I just knew internally that alcohol and drugs had their grip on my throat and they were killing me. I felt utterly demoralized. I was completely, absolutely defeated. And I knew I had to stop or I'd die. <clears throat> well, I developed uh, a quick 
tapering protocol to get off alcohol and drugs. And I failed it several times, actually a whole bunch of times. But after a year, I eventually detoxed from everything. And on Thanksgiving day, 1976, I spent my first day chemically naked. No alcohol, no drugs. Without anything to balance or stabilize my emotional access, I again was alone, tense, anxious, and really angry. I was disconnected from everything. I felt neglected, rejected, and totally out of balance. Nothing looked right to me, but I was dry and I was clean for the first time in decades, and I was miserable. I was more miserable than I could ever recall in my whole life. And if someone said, hey man, good to see you, how you doing? In my mind, I could conjure a response. I could see my arms folding across my chest and shouting through my gritted teeth, I'm fine. And I would remain fine for the next four and a half years. I completed my doctorate became licensed, began a clinical practice, and I took a half-time position on an alcohol and drug rehab unit at a small hospital near the beach. After a month or so on the unit, I figured, well, you know, I'll go up and check out this AA meeting where we send our patients every Wednesday evening. And I went to the meeting in a room that held just about 100 people. And I got there just before the meeting started. I got a few, hey, doc. How you doing? As I walked in and there were no seats left, which was really cool with me because I did not want to sit or identify with those people. I just wanted to see our patients and see what went on in that space. Well, I was standing in the back of the room. I was the only one dressed in a coat and tie and I was doing some mental gymnastics about how I was so different from these poor sick folks. I absolutely knew I was smarter than any three of them rolled together. And I continued on this mental note taking. Clearly, I was so different from this wretched lot. I just may have neglected or omitted any mention to myself that my arrogance, my overinflated ego, and my self loathing were indeed stunning. And in the middle of this exquisite mental inventory, a strange and really wonderful thing happened. After the cursory preamble, someone read from chapter five of the big book, how it works. And there I was, posted against the rear wall, arms folded across my chest and feeling fine. And I heard the line, if you want what we have. Well, Central Casting did one heck of a job that night. They filled the room with wonderful looking extras. And as I heard that line, I saw people that did not look like I felt ever, but they looked like how I wanted to feel, fine. They didn't seem to have any illegal smiles. Somehow they struck me as authentic and real. They had smiles and faces that were clearly different from anything that I could identify with. 
and I broke out in a cold sweat. I got trembling and I started to quietly cry. Well, I bolted from the meeting and uh, I felt completely out of place, but I didn't feel like the out of place that I'd felt like all my life. This out of place was different. I didn't understand it. It wasn't scary, but it indeed was a different out of place. And I left that meeting with the resolve that I had to find out what made those faces look so different than the way my face felt. And I went to one, sometimes two meetings a, a, a day, looking for those faces. And most of the time, I found them. And I came to believe that they had what they called serenity. And I knew I didn't have it. Well, I talked to myself like a good behavioral scientist should. And I discerned that if I behaved the way they did, I might possibly obtain the desired prizes I saw in those rooms. And I heard a guy speak at a meeting and I liked what I heard. And I asked him if we could talk after the meeting. And we, we talked several times. And I eventually asked him to sponsor me and he agreed. And I was introduced to working suggested steps. And we went to meetings together for years. He was a temporary sponsor. As he told me, all sponsors are temporary, just like life is temporary. I grew up in traditional AA and the concept of God was always problematic for me, even as a kid. My sponsor I found out after about two weeks was a Jesuit priest. And I was terrified about talking to him about my difficulty with handling a supreme being. And when I told him, his face got impassive. And I thought, okay, here comes the boot. And he said to me, kid, he always called me kid or boy. Kid, on that one, you're not alone. And my fear of being bounced and dropped just left. And he made some suggestions to me and his suggestions hooked me. We talked about workarounds and doing end runs around the God thing. Ignoring and reframing helped a tremendous, tremendous amount. I knew nothing about secular AA. I'm not even sure if it existed back then. At least I certainly never experienced it. Traditional AA is still home for me, but it is not half as homey as secular AA is. I love talking steps. I love talking traditions. Over time, I've learned more and more about less and less. My learning and education comes from long timers, old timers, newbies, sponsors, relapsers, big book thumpers, free thinkers, rational thinkers, humanist thinkers, folks who are on the level and folks who are a bubble off center. All have been and continue to be my instructors, my guides and my mentors. I was ready to ask for help. I was willing to do anything and go to any lengths to feel sobriety, relax my face, drop my shoulders and get comfortable in my own skin and get clear 
with who I am without drugs or alcohol. I work steps, rework steps, went to meetings, went to more meetings, took commitments, took more commitments, set up chairs, took down chairs, set up tables, took down tables. I made coffee, cleaned up coffee pots, cleaned ashtrays. For the first time in my life, on a consistent basis, I followed directions and I did what I was told. Comfort eventually came from taking different and often contrary actions to my impulse-driven self. I feel different now. My emotional life is different. I feel quiet and I feel peaceful. I try to practice the principles as in many of my affairs as I can possibly handle. I continue to work steps and I rework steps. I ask for help and assistance. I strive to be curious and ask questions. I try to offer help and assistance. I actively try to join those I see with honest smiles, honest tears, honest upsets, and honest joys. I try to identify rather than compare or judge or evaluate. Life is now mostly a pleasure. And I gotta tell you, I feel fine, really fine. Thank you.